Hi there. Welcome back to The Fray. You're about to listen to episode two in our podcast series, The Man Out of Time, story of French mathematician Evariste Galois. If you like puzzles, then you can just jump right in and listen. But if you want to catch up to the point where we are now, you can go ahead and just take a listen to episode one. Either way, I welcome you as you join me as we enter the fray. Someday, can it be believed, in the year 10 to the 70th power or so, single electrons and positrons will orbit one another to form atoms bonded across regions of space greater than the present observable universe. Heat death will prevail. The stars long since will have burnt their hydrogen and turned to iron. Even the black holes will have decayed. Entropy, thou seal on extinction, thou curse on creation. All change distributes energy, spills what cannot be gathered again. Each meal, each smile, each foot race to the well by Jack and Jill scatters treasure, lets fall gold straws once woven from the resurgent dust. That was the first stanza or so of John Updike's poem, Ode to Entropy. Now, I'm normally not a big poetry guy. I understand its importance, but I don't have the mental discipline to fully appreciate the art. However, If you combine it with some of my favorite things, like baseball or ancient Greek heroes, or in this case, the second law of thermodynamics, I tend to pay attention. Now, I've been holding on to this poem for a couple of years. I came across it in an article written for the online science magazine, Eon, but with an A, it's A-E-O-N, which I highly recommend you check out. It's always full of useful stuff and interesting articles. This particular article was entitled, Our Chemical Eden, and was written by science writer Tim Recorth. Now, the gist of the article is that life, very well, may have originated through inorganic processes, namely geologic processes, and that life is just an extension of the very same process of complexity that began with the Big Bang. It references the Updike poem when making the observation that in a universe where heat death will prevail, and place a seal on extinction and curse on creation, there remains one facet in the entire universe that goes against the grain, meaning that, at least for a time, this force appears to not be working slowly towards a useless equilibrium, but is actually actively working against it. This solitary force that carves out its place in the unforgiving, uncompromising universe is life. Now, at this point, you may be asking yourself a couple questions. What is with this apparent paradox of life versus entropy? Why does life, quote, suck the orderliness out of the environment, unquote, as famed theoretical physicist Erwin Schrodinger put it? And number two, what the hell does this have to do with the history of math? I'll get to that second question in just a moment. But concerning the first question, it is something I find endlessly fascinating. The ability for life on this planet to find a way to reverse, at least temporarily, the forces of entropy and decay. As the author of the article cited put it, it can make you feel pretty small, that we're the only ones out there doing it. 
I didn't just recite a poem for poetry's sake. Now, at some point in this episode, we'll dig a little deeper into this article in that first question. But now I want to turn my attention to the second question of what does any of this have to do with the history of math? Now, the answer, in short, is that the history of life incorporates the history of math. That may seem overly broad, so I will restate. The history of math provides key insights into the history and the emergence of life on this planet. Notice I didn't say origin of life. Now, that's a little foreshadowing for what's coming up a bit later. Now, let's get to the long answer for question number two. What does this have to do with math? And you know, with me, there's always a long answer. So this answer involves a story and a question. So let's start with the story. Now, throughout my life, people have used the term autodidact to describe me, though I do not think of myself in this way. The term autodidact means simply a self-taught person. Now, considering my limited schooling and the sheer amount of knowledge gathering I have done over the years, it appears to be an apt description. The reason I don't define myself as an autodidact sort of fellow is that I, as a person, have probably taught myself less about just about anything than, well, anything. I mean, I closely identify with Forrest Gump when he confesses, I'm not a smart man, Jenny. I mean, this certainly does smack of false modesty. After all, I am broadcasting myself out into the world asking people to listen to what I have to say. But in fairness, there was a 12-hour podcast series on Socrates that I just did, and he's a big professor of the famous I-know-nothing mantra. So if anything, I'm merely guilty of plagiarism or copying one of my idols. Now, this happens to me quite a bit, especially if I spend serious time, and Socrates is definitely someone I did, and he's one of my largest philoso crushes. So a lot of my, you know, I'm not a smart man, Jenny, philosophy comes from that. If you actually take a closer look at what Gump is trying to tell Jenny, is that he's not a smart man, but it's also not an admission that he's dumb. He's not saying that he's an idiot. He's just saying that he's not above average in intelligence. And that is about how I feel about it for me. And that's how I view it. As a seeker, I'm a searcher. That if truth be told, I have felt compelled to be since I was a kid. I'm not someone that learns much, though. I mean, for instance, I spent a great deal pondering the subject of this episode, math. I think about it all the time. I've read dozens and dozens of books, taken classes, watched lectures on YouTube, but certainly have not taught myself how to actually do anything mathematical, in the least. For I am no autodidact. I am more of a fan, a groupie, an admirer of math, a term I like to call a fanodidact. Now, this became apparent to me over 20 years ago. When I first started to buckle down and take my fanodidactism seriously, I had an encounter that put in stark relief my perception of my intellectual abilities and some real intellectual muscle. Me and Mrs. The Fray podcast, which is a shout out to Mike Duncan, and I were driving across the country. Actually, we would drive all the way around it, 10,000 miles in all over the course of 45 days or so. It was epic, awesome, and in the end, we spent every penny we had, lost all four hubcaps, and gained a great set of memories. One of our stops on our trip was in Ithaca, New York, to visit my wife's cousin, who was attending Ithaca College. Now, the town of Ithaca is home to a more famous college with a more robust pedigree, Ivy League, in fact, in the form of Cornell University. It was this institution that Roan, that is the name of the cousin that we were visiting, her current boyfriend was a graduate student at Cornell. His name is Colin, and he was a mathematician. It was an exciting time to meet this guy because 
Besides living in a cool town, going to a great school, he was also starting a biomedical company that was looking to revolutionize medical testing. Now, the goal of the company was to apply mathematical models to the medical trial process, hoping to eliminate costly and potentially harmful animal and human trials. It was an ambitious undertaking, but he was confident that the math was capable of delivering results that saved lives. Now, for me, this was right smack dab in the middle of my first math fatuation. That is me falling hard for math. Now, I had just finished that basic community college mathematics course I took, you know, my only A in my illustrious academic career, and I was feeling confident in my mathematics acumen. Of course I was. After speaking with Colin for a few minutes, I soon came to realize that I really had no idea what the hell I was saying, and more importantly, I had even less understanding of what Colin was attempting to explain. I'd come to face-to-face with the difference between an autodidact and a phanodidact. Colin's understanding of math was something out of a movie, at least as far as my recollection goes. His grasp of the mechanics of the process as well as the big picture imagination to apply said process in such a way as in saving lives and minimizing suffering. I was blown away by his ability to take the dispassionate precision of math and direct it into such an empathetic and, not to mention financially viable, endeavor. His passion and intelligence were overwhelming to me. After that conversation, I felt extremely depressed. Now, mostly because I'm a narcissist and I have made a fool of myself trying to sound intelligent to someone who really was. It was a lesson that obviously I still carry with me. I have quite a collection of these type of learning moments in my life when my excitement and carelessness get me into embarrassing straits. At any rate, after I got over my pouting and bought a philosophy book and read about 100 pages to assuage my perceived intellectual ego, which did nothing but overburden me with terminology, but nonetheless seemed to kick my brain out of the rut I found it in. And I want to give a special shout out to the Ithaca College radio station. They were playing some great tunes that afternoon. So after all that, I was able to develop a different perspective on math and the real world. The people who devote their life to the science and the special people like Colin, who could utilize the power inherent in the numbers to power amazing solutions like his new biomedical startup. I had begun to embrace my fandom, my phanodidactism, and was able to engage in fruitful and engaging conversations the remainder of our stay. I tell this story to demonstrate what I see as the difference between being intelligent and merely being a fan of intelligence. Now, most of us think we are the former, but I, for one, am just fine considering myself the latter. I'm a fan of John Coltrane and Larry Bird, of Steven Spielberg and Eddie Van Halen. Special shout out to Eddie Van. For me, no one could jam like that man, and I have the Spotify stats to prove it. Anyway, they're all way better at their respective areas of expertise than I am. I mean, I play the saxophone. I don't think I'm Coltrane. I've written a couple screenplays. I don't think I'm Spielberg. I'm a fan of their work directly because I cannot do what they do. I admire them. It was the same for me with big brains like Colin. Being able to converse with an educated, gifted mathematician I was struck with similar feelings as when I first heard Love Supreme or watched Close Encounters for the first time. I may not have the intellectual gifts of a mathematician, but I certainly have an appreciation for them. I wish I could say that after Colin, I came to realize this all at once, that I was not special or gifted. But alas, I'm all too human, and I would Peter Principle my way up more edifices of intellect in the coming decades, only to encounter very similar outcomes as the one I had with Colin all those years ago in Ithaca. Interestingly, 
in each of these instances of intellectual hubris, I've been able to recollect the Cohen incident and use it to compare against the current situation I found myself in. I mean, walking amongst the august buildings of Cornell, I could remember feeling confidence, confusion, realization, depression, and hopefully resolution. There was a complexity to this process of learning that I was not a smart man. Each time I was faced with this fact, I was able to add to that growing monument of choices that had similar circumstances. In that sense, I was glad I have a solid memory. I'm still grateful to how gracious Cohen was in affording me the chance to begin this process, to start to come to some understanding concerning my identity. Now, in addition, my interaction with Cohen offered me up this important instance of self-reflection. It also left me with something that truly excited me. Now, in the course of reading the History of Math book I had read for my community college adventure, it became evident that at its core, there was a disagreement to what math actually was, or is. This was right up my alley. At first, I was unsure if I was interpreting what I was reading correctly. As I understood it, math and the people who work in the field can be divided into two major camps. The first camp consists of what are called materialists. That sounds familiar. They believe that math is a construction of the human mind. Mathematics is a pragmatic science that is created and altered based on the whims and needs of the humans using it. Now, the second camp are the Platonists. They believe that math exists outside of the material world. Mathematics is something that is uncovered by humanity in the process of analyzing the physical world. Math is more real than the real world and it can only be understood in its perfect form in the mind of a human being. The physical universe is merely a representation of the more real, indeed, perfect metaphysical world of mathematics. I should insert a record scratch sound here. What the what? Is it me or did I just jump the rails and get all philosophical? When I was supposed to be talking about math. I mean, on the surface of things, are there two more opposite pursuits than philosophy and mathematics? The easy answer? No, not really. The more complex answer? Well, you get below the surface of what is perceived as math, and you will find a world just as filled with uncertainty and unknowns as the slipperiest of philosophies. I mean, start with the fact that the names of the two major types of philosophical beliefs and the two major types of mathematical beliefs are the same. And moving on to the fact that both areas of human thought have grown up together. Math and logic, for instance, were a major part of the ancient Greek schools of philosophy. Plato's very own school, the academy, even went so far as to place a mathematical caveat on even walking in the front door. For the words, let no one enter who does not understand geometry, were chiseled over the front arch of the campus. Now, it is not only his name that Plato offered up to mathematical understanding, but it is probably the very thing that caused Plato to come up with his theory of forms, represented most vividly in the allegory of the cave. Now, Plato loved math, and on many occasions remarked on its metaphysical perfection. Plato's forms started out as math in the form of geometry, and going forward, those that professed the belief that math is something else, something more, got themselves labeled as mathematical Platonists. Now, the materialists of Plato's day, the pre-Socratics, Epicureans, and skeptics, understood that geometry was never going to produce a perfect circle in nature. So what? It was still hella useful in parsing up land and doling out grain. They saw no need to extend to math any additional powers, especially ones that were metaphysical and couldn't be represented in the material world. 
Now, over time, the two sciences diverged. Math rose to prominence while philosophy faded into academic oblivion. However, despite all the great heights math has reached over the centuries, at its core, deep down, the question still remained, what is math? That brings me back to Colin. When I presented him with this question, I was surprised to watch him struggle. This was a gifted mathematician, working on his doctorate at an Ivy League school at the same time attempting to get a cutting-edge technology company off the ground. And he didn't have a definitive answer. Now, he answered quickly that math was, of course, a human invention. What else could it be? Then, after some thought, he smiled, shrugged, and said, You have to admit it, though. Math does have very interesting properties. Now, he went on to list a couple of them. First, he mentioned the consistency of math over time. Math works in the same manner, no matter what time or space you happen to be occupying. Very few other human inventions have the ability to work for everyone every time, no matter what language they speak or what they happen to believe in. Language certainly doesn't do that. For all the noise surrounding love and its power, it is patently obvious that love is not used universally. In some ways, the understanding of math is more like the understanding of a physical system, like the senses. The complexity of the eye, the ear, and the olfactory sense is amazingly universal, as is the troublesome self-awareness called consciousness. These all seem to work the same for almost everybody. Kind of like math. So math somehow lives in both worlds, the physical world of systems and processes, as well as the abstract world of the human mind. In the physical world, math seems to appear spontaneously, without human intervention, uses the example of a whirlpool in a bathtub. The water going down the drain is not alive, but nonetheless, it organizes itself into a mathematically optimal form, the elegant pinwheeling down the drain, without so much as a neuron firing. There's also the theory from the last episode, it from bit, with the exchange of information between matter, whose probabilities are the very bedrock of the universe, as well as 100% mathematical. Now, math is also alive and, more importantly, actionable exclusively in the minds of humans. Abstract, theoretical, mathematical thought is real. It is what this whole podcast series is based on, one of the originators of modern abstract math. But on its own, as a collection of symbols, Abstract math does not exist in any other form other than coded symbols designed to stand for other stuff. Now, very few human inventions or conceptions came anywhere close to the scope and breadth of mathematics. In overall cultural saturation, language and religion are really the only competitors to the crown of universality. But there really is no comparison between math and those two examples, since both language and religion are not universally effective, to say the least. Now, Colin continued getting more excited the more he let the thought of the perfect platonic world of math living out there somewhere waiting to be discovered. He also mentioned this weird prescience of math, is what he called it, its ability to presage coming scientific needs and produce exactly what is needed by whatever science is needing assistance at that time. Now, this is where it got great. He brought up Galois, the subject of our podcast, specifically Galois groups the algebraic conception of reality by way of complexity and symmetry. He talked about how Galois groups begat Riemann's contributions to non-Euclidean geometry, and how that was used to prove the mathematics of Einstein's theory of relativity. Without Galois groups, there would have been no relativity by way of expanding mathematics past its classical forms. 
such as Euclidean geometry, which prior to Galois was just called geometry. After Galois, a title needed to be added as two more types of geometry were created, spherical and hyperbolic, to humanity's math toolkit. Now, from a distance, the timing of the discoveries are circumstantially fascinating and so timely and essential, it was like it was put there on purpose to be used precisely by Einstein when he needed it most. Now, Cohen, as a lover of math, was also a lover of Everiste Galois and his studying contributions. And to him, Galois also represented the odd properties of math, its strange ability to appear not of this world, to produce bewildering original insights in the most unlikely of places. In short, Galois was for Cohen the perfect example of the mysterious metaphysical nature of mathematics. Then he said, publicly, most mathematicians will claim to be materialists, but in private, I would venture a lot of them believe that math exists outside of the consciousness of the human mind. Another record scratch. Irrit? Really, I asked? Because if so, that's exciting. It meant, as a phanodidact, I could continue my investigations into math and its mysteries since even the smartest of them had questions they couldn't answer. And due to the nature of this particular question involving metaphysics, semantics, epistemology, ontology, and all that good old philosophy blabber, it meant that I didn't have to actually do math to continue to seek answers to math's biggest question. Now, how close am I into answering these questions? Well, if you listen to the episode one of this series and you heard my theory of Dick, or diachronic informational control, that should give you a pretty good idea of my progress. But progress, in my own moronical way, I did. After we left Ithaca, the idea of math being something extra real outside of the material world really set in with me. If it was good enough for an Ivy League mathematician, then it was good enough for me. How about you? What do you think math is? Now that's the question. We just had the story in which I hope to give context to the issue at hand. What is math? An easy answer is much harder to find than you would think. Now, Collins' insight that math strides both worlds, the physical and the metaphysical, is helpful. Taking the example of the whirlpool, or maybe just the tub, say the tub of Archimedes. You know, the one he was lounging in when he came up with the water displacement theory, when among the many positive things to arise from this groundbreaking observation was the term Eureka, which the naked Archimedes shouted running down the streets after pulling out a foundational concept of knowledge seemingly out of midair or midwater. When an inanimate object falls in a pool of water, the reaction is the same regardless if there is a conscious observer or not. Archimedes was able to observe and intuit that something submerged in a liquid equates to the amount of liquid that is displaced. This is how we know about how boats float to make submarines sink and dirigibles fly. Breaking it down, it went something like this. Matter, change in matter, observation, reason and intuition, theory, proof, translated into math. This last part, transforming the bathtub and a naked ancient mathematician into mathematics to make it more universal. That is the core concept of mass interaction with us and the physical world. The idea falls closely a topic I talked quite a bit about in the Socrates podcast, the concept of metaphors and how they prove to be the conduit through which the natural world is understood by the human mind. For an in-depth examination of this theory, I invite you to listen to episodes 3, 4, and 5 of part 2 of the Alpha Human series. 
I'm going to give you just a brief explanation here. It's based on the fact that all of our understanding hinges on our physical interaction with the material world. Examples, the authors of the book Philosophy in the Flesh, which you could also read if you really wanted to get an awesome uh, rundown of their own theory. One of their examples would be up is good, relating to the relationship between an infant's size and its parent's size. Another is life is a journey, referring to how we view our time on earth. You know, these types of metaphors are core to our understanding. So I think the theory of metaphor fits snugly into defining the connection between the human mind, the physical world, and the logic that is created. For instance, a tree is not a rock. Something cannot be both itself and something else. A does not equal B. Now, this is a very materialist answer, but that is what it's called for. The physical world of inert matter has a mathematical representation. Humans inherently understand it. They understand it by interacting with said matter and developing the math to best explain and make use of the interaction. But what about the other side of the coin, the other shoe of math? What other side, you may be asking? Well, I'm talking about how math is utilized by all peoples in the same manner, somehow, and all the history of human inventions being one of the only concepts to achieve that ability. We've already stated language and religion are severely lacking in consistency and efficacy. Governance, technology, physics and engineering, music, art, emotions. I mean, out of that limited list, I would pick maybe only emotions as something that all humans share universally. The rest, while important, either suffer from the same malady as language and religion, looking at you, governance. Others are just manifestations of math, engineering, and technology. And music and art, and I'll add dancing, fighting to that list, while quite universal, can be argued to be a manifestation of the already accepted emotions. I mean, come to think of it, I believe I just convinced myself that math exists in the human consciousness at a level below emotions. It's logical to me that if I was defining dancing or singing as being part of a larger overall emotional structure, meaning that without emotions you would not have dancing, fighting, singing, or drumming, then math, which is seemingly unaffected by human emotions, must exist, developmentally speaking, below the advent of human emotion. Because once you have emotion, is there anything that isn't affected by them? Maybe that is the reason why stuff like language and religion get so, get so fucked up. They are all concepts created in the human mind after emotions and therefore must filter through the unpredictable, unknown physiology of thought. Now, I say that because despite what may be said or written in some science magazines, we still don't have a really good idea of how the mind physically works. We know some tricks. We know some brain games. We can administer some functional MRIs and look at the pretty colors on the screen. But in truth, we struggle with understanding how we understand. But that makes sense because maybe reason developed after emotions too. But I don't think math did. So what if math really did exist before life itself in the form of inert matter, mostly dormant, but some, just a small amount of matter, coming into contact with a steady source of energy? Their interactions, like the rock falling in the tub with no one around to see it, or the whirlpool of water down your drain, existed mathematically. They just hadn't been given a voice yet. This inert math needed to wait patiently for life, or more specifically, matter and energy to extend themselves and become life. 
when the connection between math and mind began. So while math may not be life, in my opinion, there is no life without math. Now, doesn't that beg some questions? Like, aren't there some cultures, both historically and currently, that do not use math? Indeed, in some places on Earth today, like deep in the jungles of Borneo or in the Amazon, there are tribes of people, some of them only have three numeric symbols, one, two, and many, and do no other discernible mathematics in their daily or ceremonial lives. The answer to this question depends, I guess, on how you define math. Math is a one-way street. It starts in the consciousness of the human mind and nowhere else. Nothing else in the universe is in any way, shape, or form mathematical or contain information of a mathematical nature. Matter is mathless. Now, on the other hand, you could define math as information inherent in all forms of matter. When two atoms collide, they exchange information concerning velocity, mass, energy, and anything else that might be going on at the time. That exchange of information is in the form of math. When a tribesman from the jungles of Borneo attempts to put his elbow in his ear, what stops him are the immutable laws of the universe. Angles, chemical compositions, mineral densities, applications of force. Or to put it more succinctly, what stops him is math. When a rock falls in a pool of water, the water is still displaced. A conscious observer is not required for math to happen. So if you are a constructivist, then the first definition probably comes closest to how you see math. But there are some big questions that have already been raised when it comes to this strict understanding of mathematics. First, if math was developed by man, why? One, two, and many seem to work just fine. Second, why is math inoculated against the effects of human emotion? Another way to put it could be third, what explains math's incredible universality as compared to all other human inventions? Now, if you believe the second definition, what does that make you? I mean, it certainly sounds a lot like it's trying to tell me that math exists outside of human consciousness. Does that make the second definition platonic? It could. But what if there was another way to look at it? What if, instead of thinking that math exists outside of human consciousness, you thought that math was included in and, in fact, responsible for consciousness? The mystery of math, its seemingly metaphysical existence, is in fact a result of being an integral part of the extension of matter and energy into life. Math exists in the human mind because the human mind evolved with math long before there was a mind, before there was a human, before animals, plants, microbes, molecules, cells, atoms. The simplest, most essential thing, for lack of a better word, in the universe is that intangible yes or no choice, the zero or one. Math is it from bit. Single bits beget groups of bits, begets trillions of bits, begets it with a capital I. Now, this is definitely a different way to think of life and math, for sure. As I said early, I cannot take really any credit for much of it. I mean, I kind of did tie in it from bit to this sort of geologic theory of life that we're going to talk about in a minute. But taken as a whole, I think it's solidly based on those two scientific theories, that it from bit, which we discussed at length in the previous episode, and this new theory, well, new to us, called the chemical garden theory. It's got a catchy title. But before I dive into the intricacies of what the hell a chemical garden is, 
I thought it best to approach this new theory in a certain way. So help me tie in that story from Colin. And since I'm a sucker for poetry, as I mentioned, about things I care about, we're going to bring Updike's poem back in as well. So after I left Colin and Ithaca behind, I continued my phanodidacting. I now knew that I didn't really need to dig into mathematics because at its deepest core, math was not going to provide me with answers that I wanted. I mean, if Colin couldn't have a solid answer to what math was, what sense did it make for me to journey down the same path with far inferior skills? I turned once again to philosophy, and I was disappointed. My investigations of the philosophic greats turned out not to be so great. Most of the issue was probably with me and my inability to comprehend the material, but it still seemed to always get bogged down in terminology and semantics. Besides, the greats of philosophy were not asking the questions I was interested in. How did life begin? What is consciousness? These types of questions were passe to the Kants, the Hegels, the Mills, and the Descartes. The demigods who inhabited the, the philosophic heavens had relinquished those questions to religion. So, as strange as it sounds, and if you know me, it is a very strange turn indeed, I turned towards religion to see if I could get some of the answers I was looking for. Now, I didn't go all whole hog revivalist. I had spent my entire youth as a Catholic and felt that I had enough of that form of religion, you know, the participatory kind. I instead turned to academia and books, and that is where I came across the Jesuit priest and paleontologist, Pierre Teilhard de Chardin. He's French, by the way. And his theory of what he called the new sphere, which isn't French. I think the new sphere is Greek. So what is the new sphere? And that's N-O-O-S-P-H-E-R-E. Well, in words of evolutionary biologist Julian Huxley, which as an aside was totally into eugenics, proving that once again, being a smart man, Jenny, doesn't exclude you from being a total and complete douchebag. Anyway, this flawed but highly accomplished douchebag sums up the new sphere thusly. Quote, he, meaning Deschardins, refers to the new sphere as a new layer or membrane on the Earth's surface, a thinking layer suspended on the living layer of the biosphere and the lifeless layer of inorganic material, the lithosphere. Unquote. So yeah, like an internet for the mind. Now, let's set down a couple details. All of this theorizing and new sphering was going on about a hundred years ago. The men involved in coming up with the concept of the new sphere, literally enveloping the globe, all lived and worked at the same time and worked together, or at least corresponded and attended the same scientific conferences. Well, until they didn't. Politics will change some of that. Now, the main players in the development of the term and concept of new sphere were the aforementioned Deschardins, a French Jesuit priest who also happened to be a man of science. He was directly involved in the discovery and excavation of Peking Man, which happened, I think, in the 1880s. A bunch of fossils discovered not far from Beijing uh, comprised of the remains of Homo erectus, an evolutionary descendant of ours. Now, trying his best to balance his faith and his scientific brain, he thought of the new sphere as a natural extension of evolution. His theory is what we call teleological, meaning it is progressing toward something. And this is where Deschardins drags his faith in through the back door, claiming that the progress consciousness is making is all toward something he calls the omega point, or God. Now, Deschardins starts with science, but it doesn't take him long to venture off into the wilderness of the metaphysical. 
Now, his most famous work, titled The Phenomenon of Man, was published in 1952. Now, it's going to do a little research into how the church felt about his theory, but a simple Google search returned pages of articles with titles like Challenging the Rehabilitation of Deschardins and Vatican at War over Deschardins. So I guess they didn't like it. So Deschardins was popular regardless of the church's feelings on that matter. I mean, think of the timing. 1952, you're, you know, you're starting beatnik, hippie, new age world. So his beliefs and theories are custom designed for that whole mindfulness movement. New age authors, these are his thoughts, and it even started sort of a full-fledged industry called noetics. All of it based on Deschardins' thoughts of his thinking layer, his news sphere. And for the record, when I first read The Phenomenon of Man, I was floored. I loved it. I bought a first edition. I gave away copies as Christmas gifts. Over time, I have lost some of my infatuation for the theory. I mean, mostly the metaphysical part. But I still feel a strong pull concerning the connectiveness of human consciousness. Now, I wasn't alone. I, Deschardins wasn't the only one working on it. Now, it turns out there was someone else working on the concept of newsphere, but most of the Western world has no idea who this man is. He is a celebrated Russian scientist who lived through the tumultuous Russian Revolution and became a stalwart scientific and political figure in the early Soviet Union. That's the politics I was talking about earlier. Now, the scientist's name is Vladimir Vernansky, and he is co-credited with coining the term newsphere. After spending time in Paris with mutual friends of Deschardins, Vernansky eventually retired to his native Kiev to continue his scientific research. So what was Vladimir doing behind the Iron Curtain? Well, he was a geologist. And it seems pretty mundane, but to me, it was exciting. It was very unlikely, at least to me, that a geologist would go off the reservation into metaphysical land. I mean, what is more opposite from a priest than a Soviet geologist? So what does geology have to do with a thinking layer of consciousness enveloping the entire world? Well, I'll get to that in a second. A little bit more on Vlad the geologist. He was far more than that mundane moniker would indicate. The man established the sciences of geochemistry, biogeochemistry, and radiogeology. Now, what he found most amazing about the geologic record of this planet was in how much information was still to be gathered and learned from. You would think that we know all there is to know about rocks, but Big Bad Vlad was able to make many significant breakthroughs in the science. Here he sums up his early feelings about the information in a letter to his wife in 1888. Quote, To collect facts for their own sake, as many now gather facts without a program, without a question to answer or a purpose, is not interesting. I believe there is hidden here still more to discover when one considers the complexity of chemical elements and the regularity of their occurrence in groups. Unquote. Over the next couple of decades, Vladimir would be able to ascertain key insights into the chemical makeup of the Earth. He used cutting-edge technology, some of which he invented, that used radiation and chemistry to tease out answers from inert matter. For instance, he was able to prove that the chemical makeup of the Earth's crust is not static, that it fluctuates, not just on the macro level, but on the microscopic level as well. Change was always happening, even in presumably the most unchanging of matter. And it turns out that the chemical evolution that Vladimir was observing adhered to the rules laid out for the evolution of life on the planet. Then he went to one place where great scientific insights are known to come from. He went on a trip to Canada. 
And while traveling the country looking for minerals, he came across many strip mines and clear cuts. He viewed whole forests destroyed by the radiation of the ore that was being mined. In short, he saw human beings having an effect on the environment. Humans were affecting the geology. Now, this was back in 1913 or so, before World War I, before the Russian Revolution. So he went home to Russia and began to establish programs under the Tsar to make sense of that epiphany that struck him while visiting those Canadian eras of desolation and destruction. This is where Vlad becomes the first major intellectual to put forth the ideas establishing things like environmental science and sustainability movements. Around this time, is going back and forth to France until the war started, is when he worked with some of Deschardins' contemporaries, and he simultaneously came up with the term newsphere. Now, to him, it was a much more practical term, an almost metabolic reaction to the ongoing progress. Now, as a side there, Vlad thought evolution was teleological too, just like Deschardins, just not towards a godhead. His thoughts ventured into a little bit more into the comic book universe. He believed that evolution is progressing towards a full understanding of the subatomic world. And once we begin to use that knowledge to develop new power sources through what he calls, quote, the nuclear transmutation of elements, unquote. Now that may sound crazy. It is a well-founded idea in the realm of futurist and theoretical physicists who make it their business to think of the next thing while we are all enjoying the last thing. So this kind of brought up something that just an observation I've made, you know, doing these podcasts and reading what I've read. I've read a few books concerning the Soviet Union that have been written by non-Anglos, you know, non-American or British. And I got to tell you, it's been pretty eye-opening. Now, as a child of the 70s and 80s, there was only one way to view the Iron Curtain, evil. Now, that's apt, a little ironic, you'd say. Hindsight shines a light on the choice of words used by us in the West, evil a moral religious term that defines the major difference between the West, as it was defined during the Cold War, and the Soviet Union. And the West, or at least mostly America, is a society based on believing there is a higher power, a co-pilot in the sky that has a plan and promises an eternal afterlife. Now, the Soviets, on the other hand, are atheists. They, as a conscious decision, deny the metaphysical fantasy of a higher power. They made a choice to take the world as it is and try their best to understand how it worked. Now, this is made abundantly clear in the example for the two types of newsphere. The Western version, developed by a metaphysician in the person of Deschardins, has inspired many in the fields of art, theology, New Age metaphysics. Basically, all that is metaphysical, which makes sense. That is how it is conceived, at least as far as the artist theologian and New Age mystic is concerned. Now, on the other hand, the Soviets approached the idea of the new sphere as a real thing and experimented on it, theorized about it, learned how humans interact in groups and in large social networks. A century ago, the Soviets started learning all about how human networks functioned. They began with the effects of human thought on the environment, and that led them eventually to start applying those lessons they learned to other facets of life. Social networks, for example. The concept called nucinosis, N-O-O-C-E-N-O-S-I-S, a term first coined by the Soviets back in the 1930s that is defined loosely as a common mutual sense or mind. Nucinosis occurs when human activity degrades the existing environment 
and replaces many of the biological adaptive structures with a sort of groupthink or group perception. Russian-American philosopher Mikhail Epstein, attempting to define nusinosis, says, quote, We are talking about the totality of ideas, images, mental objects, information fields, filling the material environment, the nature of their relationship with each other and with this environment, the process of the interaction and circulation. In the system of scientific concepts, nusinosis refers to the nusphere as a biosinosis refers to the biosphere. Each culture and subculture, professional environment and social unit develops its own nusinosis, its own way of exchanging ideas, surviving and spreading in the nusphere. Unquote. So, with a century of working on stuff like that, we have ourselves now in the 21st century, back here in the United States, we are busy working to make sure evolution is removed from science curriculums, that the Supreme Court is packed with Catholics, some of whom have pledged to make the U.S. a kingdom of God, and generally ignoring science and data to the point where a quarter million people have already lost their lives to a virus that most Americans only pray and soon. Not to mention fossil fuel dependency and the horrific travesties and loss of life committed in the name of oil. And how about climate change? None of that matters to the average American. They are too busy tearing each other apart on social media. The only thing that matters to them is what Epstein called their social unit and its surviving and spreading. Meanwhile, the Russians have spent the better part of a century understanding the science behind social networks, learning all about how human behavior is influenced to defend their social unit. Is there any doubt that their mastery in this area has had an effect on our lives? Is there also any doubt that our squabbling over which version of the bearded old guy gets to sit on the throne of heaven amounts to a century of wasted time and an opportunity missed? More than that, the real-world consequences to all our sanctimonious hang-wringing over religion's place in America, which, as I recall, is nowhere in the government at all, which is something my religious friends can help explain to me. How can we have freedom of religion if the state is run by one religion? Two-thirds of the Supreme Court is Catholic. But that's the average American person's thinking for you. The ultimate in moral relativity. The right choice not being the ethical one based on a firm sense of right and wrong, but instead being a weak morality that is based all on who is committing the act, not the act itself. Now, I can get a little passionate when I'm talking about these new neo-dark ages that we find ourselves here in the United States. It only makes it worse that there have been other countries in the world that sloughed off the crippling yoke of the church as the state and began in earnest to understand how the world works. Shame on us. We have no one to blame but ourselves. I can't believe that we're dumb enough to put all our well-being in the hands of people of faith. I mean, how stupid do you have to be to completely ignore the dark ages? That was a hell of a long time. Also, a hell of a hell on earth. All with 100% religious leadership. But sure, let's try it again. I'm sure they've learned their lesson. It kind of reminds me of the last lines of the poem that started off this episode. Ode to Entropy finishes with, quote, There is still enough energy in one overlooked star to power all the heavens madmen have ever proposed. Unquote. Not sure if that little diatribe will make it into the final cut. It's an interesting time <laughs> to record a podcast. In any event, 
The last lines of those poem also bring me back to my original focus of the episode. The question stands, what is math? The answer so far is a theory based on mathematics being integral not only to the understanding of the world, but to constructing the world in the first place. Life as we know it is not something altogether new or created. Instead, it emerges as the next logical step in progressing complexity, namely the systems to help increase the entropy, speed up the process of the universe winding down to a static oblivion. That's right. Life is actually helping speed up the process of entropic death. It's what the universe is designed to do. And math is how we understand that process. So if math predates consciousness and was in fact part of the emergence of life itself, how exactly would that have happened? That is where the poem comes in. There is still enough energy, it says. Energy, power. That has been the linchpin in our understanding of the origins of life on this planet. More accurately, it can be said that the unknown surrounding energy in the origin of life has left a gaping hole in the theory's efficacy. This is only because the current theory is based on chemistry. Science has been attempting to answer the question chemically instead of looking for what type of energy would allow for the emergence of life. This line of thinking of the origin of life dates back to at least Darwin's day in the 1830s. The warm pool of elements that chemically combined with like a lightning strike or something other form of energy to form life. Now, this idea took off in a big way in the 1950s, when a graduate student of the University of Chicago named Stanley Miller hooked up two flasks with a concoction of elements and zapped it with an electric current. Now, over the course of a week, the flasks changed color multiple times, settling into a deep red color. Inside the solution, there was also the building blocks of life, organic compounds including amino acids. The dude made the cover of Time magazine. It seemed that the answer to the origin of life had been found. But something funny happened on the way to the forum, and no one could get a consistent enough energy source that didn't Goldilocks the shit out of proto-life. Meaning, while it was feasible for a lab experiment like Miller's to send a consistent mama bear just right current through the flasks, how was that supposed to work in the chaotic environment that life supposedly emerged in? He was either going to get Papa Bear out of existence by a giant bolt of lightning, or Baby Bear amount of energy wouldn't be enough to do anything. I mean, there was no Energizer Bunny back then, right? Now, scientists have been baffled, and the excitement for a chemical basis of life has begun to wane. Enter into the fray the savior of the scientific emergence of life theories, the ever-reliable and thoroughly mundane science of geology. Indeed, geology provides the likely answer to the origin of life. At the very least, it is one that makes the most sense. All this goes back to that great article by science writer Tim Rekworth. In his piece, Rekworth does a great job of breaking down the intricacies of what is called the chemical garden hypothesis. The gist of the theory goes something like this. Life began as a process of trapping and processing energy. This type of process could only occur under very specific conditions. It would require a chemically rich environment, which the acidic oceans of 3.5 billion years ago could provide. On top of that, the ocean floor would have have vents spewing a consistently alkaline solution of elements into the ocean water. High levels of protons in the acid solution colliding with low levels of protons in the alkaline solution repeatedly under tremendous pressure and here is the key, for a long duration, meaning 
it needs a long-lasting, consistent source of energy, which the hydrothermal vent on the ocean floor provided. Now, it sounds pretty out there, doesn't it? And for a while, it seemed that most of the scientific world thought so, too. Now, from the article, Recourse says, quote, The huge problem with Russell's clever explanation was that the chemical gardens, his inferred crucibles of life, seemed to exist only in his imagination. Ocean-bottom mineral structures of somewhat similar kind had been discovered in 1977 and even sparked discussion as a possible site for the origin of life. But the idea was quickly batted down because of their violent volcanism and short lifespan. Stanley Miller, you know, the flask guy, the world's most eminent origin-of-life researcher at the time, told Discover magazine in 1992 that the so-called hydrothermal vent theory was, quote, a real loser. I don't even understand why we have to discuss it, unquote. Then, one winter evening in 2000, a team of geologists lowered a remote-controlled vehicle, Argo 2, into the calm waters of the Atlantic to survey an underwater mountain range. It descended past spiral corals and clouds of krill, past the photic zone where the ambient glow of the sun diffuses to blackness, past the half-mile mark on the depth gauge. Suddenly, the vehicle's lamps illuminated something utterly unexpected, a cluster of otherworldly pinnacles rising from the ocean floor, as tall as 20-story buildings. Shimmering plumes of heated water billowed from the tops like smoke from chimneys. This strange landscape turned out to host an exotic ecosystem of snails, crabs, worms, and shellfish, sustained by microbes that convert raw elements from the inner earth into life without any help from the sun. This field of hydrothermal vents, dubbed the Lost City, conformed almost exactly to Russell's 1983 predictions. His chemical gardens had been found, unquote. So what does all this mean for life and more to the point for math? Well, it comes down to energy. If everything started with a big bang and ever since has been a race towards equilibrium, towards entropy, then there will be some sort of naturally occurring order in all the disorder. This is because of the fact that often the fastest way to achieve entropic status, meaning to dissipate all the energy in a system, to render that system finally unusable, is to actually create order. Sounds like a bit of a paradox, doesn't it? If you want chaos, create some order. But think about it. Doesn't it make sense? If you let an engine run at high RPMs, it will run out of energy faster. This type of order can come about even in the most inert of matter. Remember that bathtub? With the water running down the drain and how it naturally formed a whirlpool, which just happens to be an extremely efficient way to drain a tub of water? Somehow the universe consists of orderliness that involves no consciousness, no life, just energy and matter. I mean, what are galaxies if not whirlpools in space? I like to think of it as order in order to disorder. Now, I'm positing that this mindless orderliness that occurs throughout the universe has, at its core, the concept of mathematics built into it. It is this inherent quality that has evolved with the universe over billions and billions of years, an incomprehensible duration that is continuing to evolve. One of its most recent events is the advent of consciousness as a new style of order in order to disorder. I mean, if you think about it, could there be a better way to describe human behavior? We as humans seem to create order from disorder that just seems to create more disorder. 
And I think Biggie put it best. More money, more problems. So math is not wholly created by man, and math does not exist independent of man. I can say that second part because math and man are in one the same thing. Saying that just because math may have existed before man does not on its face grant math independence. It is a more complicated relationship than just two strangers in the night. In a linear time sense, one could make the argument that existing prior to something else means it is independent of anything that comes after it. I guess I'm saying there is more than one way to define that relationship. I mean, after all, there is definitely more than one way to define time. So if that is the crux of an argument, time's multiplicity needs to be factored in. I like to think about it, evolution that is, the relationship between math and humans, as part of one long duration, one long tick of the clock that we happen to slice up into seconds, minutes, and hours. In that sense, I see math as part of man as much as the elements that make up the physical body and the energy that powers it. In the same manner, math provides life with an ongoing service to our little system of consciousness. It is how our consciousness, how the new sphere, interacts with the universe. So that's how I tie in my Vlad the geologist with my theory of geologic life. The idea that someone a hundred years ago started to see the effects of the human consciousness on the physical world and then started to ask scientific questions about that and study that eventually eked its way out into the West, even though it happened behind the Iron Curtain. And when you read the article by Requorth and you under, start to understand where this theory of the chemical gardens, this geology of life theory comes from, perfectly folds in with the idea that if we're all part of this sort of emerging set of spheres that keeps growing, lithosphere, biosphere, new sphere, well, the idea that life generated from geological processes of heat transfer goes a long way of explaining how that would come about in the first place. How would one sphere beget the other sphere? Well, because they're all part of one process. So as we begin our march through the history of one aspect of math, namely the equation, it is something that I hope that is in the back of your mind. Not necessarily my answer to what math is. As you can probably ascertain from this episode, my answers are a work in progress. Instead, just the idea of the undecided nature of what math is. As we course through a brief history of the equation, it is important to have some understanding concerning the place math has in our universe. There is no difference between a whirlpool forming in your bathtub, a galaxy forming in the universe, life emerging on the planet, and you organizing your closet. Each process or system that is temporarily created, the conditions that existed to allow it to emerge, and the laws that govern them, and the eventual entropic loss of energy and order all have two things in common. First, that the very order that is exhibited in each system is actually increasing the universe's march towards oblivion, what Updike's poem lamented as a seal on extinction and a curse on creation. And secondly, that the accountant of the operation, the one keeping track of the progress, counting all the beans, making sure everything is in its right place as the universe races towards oblivion, is none other than our elusive friend, mathematics. So maybe to paraphrase the words of French mathematician Charles Hermite, 
born the year before Galois was to die in his duel, he was fond of saying, we are servants rather than masters of mathematics. But instead of a master-servant relationship, maybe we are passengers riding on the same vehicle as mathematics. Maybe math is driving. After all, when the universe is in the final throes of entropic heat death and all but a few atoms are left after all of their trillion fellow atoms have, as Updike said, been turned to iron, what will be around at the very last interaction in the universe before it dies? What will be keeping track of the very last decision, the very last yes or no, the very last choice of zero or one?